pray with me. Father in heaven, it is ours to say hallelujah that Christ has risen. And so, Father, we pray that even now the very risen Christ who lives in us by the Holy Spirit would attend this word. And Father, attend it in such a way that it would dig all the way down to the very fabric of our souls. And Father, that it would grant us assurance and it would grant us peace and it would grant us a great confidence to follow Christ and a great hope that a day will come and we will see Christ as He is and be like Him. In this we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. You may be seated. Turn, please, to Romans in chapter 6. Romans in chapter 6, please. Romans chapter 6. I want to read uh, verses 1 through 14. Romans in chapter 6, 1 through 14. Hear the word of God. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we also live with him. We know that Christ being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. For sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. Now, I want us really to concentrate our attention this morning on verse 5, after having read all that, which is simply this. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united to him in a resurrection like his. And I do that because in these weeks, as many of you know, as we've been approaching this particular Sunday, we've been focusing our attention upon the death and today even the resurrection uh, of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we've been focusing our attention not simply on the fact that he died or how he died, because those are observable facts of history. They're recorded in history. We can read them. Most assuredly, they're recorded in the Scripture. But while the Bible is historical, its main intent isn't simply to write us history. It's a selective history. It's really the history of redemption. That is, so that all people, at all times, in every place, can read the Scripture and understand how it is that there is salvation by faith 
in Christ Jesus. That, that's, that's the history that's there. But you see, it's more than just facts of history. It's, a, it's an interpretation of those facts. It's really revelation. That is, it tells us what it is that we can't see with our very eyes. Because while when Christ was crucified, you could see him being crucified, and, and, and even you could see him die. The question remains, why? What was the purpose for which he died? What was he accomplishing in his death? And even you can see Christ raised. And there were those who saw Christ raised and didn't believe in him. Because the question would remain, how is he alive and why is he alive? And what really does it mean that he's alive? That's really the point. And so the scripture comes to us to reveal to us what we can't see with our own eyes. And if we get caught up in only seeing what happens without concentrating our attention on why and for what purpose and what it accomplished, then we miss it. So we've been focusing our attention on the purpose for which Christ died. Why did he die? What was he accomplishing in his death? And what we found, if you've been with us, you might remember, is that first and foremost, Christ died so that his Father would be honored. The Son died, gave himself, so that his Father would be honored in saving sinners. Because, you see, the dilemma of the Father was that he couldn't simply acquit the guilty and be righteous. And so the Son, in honor of his Father, came and gave himself so that his Father's righteousness would be vindicated. Secondly, we saw that Christ died so that he could ensure, he can guarantee, he could give eternal life to all those the Father had given him, that he would raise all those the Father had given him on the last day, that they really would be saved. He came to accomplish the salvation, ultimately, we could say, of all those who would believe. And then we saw that Christ came to bring reconciliation between God and us by propitiating, by paying the sacrifice for our sins and assuaging his wrath. He brings that reconciliation between God and us, but also between us and God, because he purchases for us in his death all of the benefits of the new covenant, including our new heart, including our faith. And then just the other night, on Thursday evening, we saw that the death of Christ demonstrated for us the tremendous, unfathomable, incomprehensible love, love of God for us. Now today, what I want us to see that in the death and resurrection of Jesus... There is a present reality and a future certain hope, right? That in the death and resurrection of Jesus, there is a present reality and a future hope that is certain. And I say it that way, a future hope that is certain, because sometimes when we use the word hope, we think of, of, of there's a good probability, a good possibility that it may take, may happen. But, but the point is that when the Bible uses the word hope, it means a certainty that you can bank on it. And so you see, there was a past event. There was an event in history, an event in the past, the death and resurrection of Jesus, that provides for us a present reality and a future hope. And when I say the crucifixion of Jesus, I mean his death, the death by crucifixion, the death uh, which he voluntarily submitted to so that his Father could save sinners, that God can save us. When I speak of the resurrection of Jesus, I speak of that event in history at a point in time, a moment in time, 
where this dead Jesus came back to life. Was given a resurrected body, a new body, that was like his previous body because he was recognizable. After people got over the shock, he was recognizable, but his body was different. He could show up places, which I think is really cool, and, and leave them. But still it was a body, for he ate, he could be touched. It was a body. Jesus, the Son of God, God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man, still with this resurrected body. Crucifixion, resurrection, that's the past event. Now the present reality is that we have now, as believers in Christ, forgiveness of sins and the bondage, the power, the dominion, the rule of sin has been broken. Present reality. Future hope, our own resurrection. Jesus said to Mary, you remember, after he raised Lazarus from the dead, he said that, do you believe in me? And those who believe in me, even though you die, yet shall you live. This body will die, but because Christ has been raised, we will be raised as well. Now, I want us to see Paul's logic here. Now, I know it's Easter, but we still have to think on Easter because, you see, thinking is necessary for believing and believing is necessary for life, for living, all right? Thinking is necessary to believing. We simply don't come to God empty-headed. We come thinking. And he, of course, reveals to us how we're to think. And so there's a logic to all of this. And so if we're thinking wrongly, we'll be believing wrongly, which means we will be living disastrously. So right thinking is necessary to right believing. And so we need to see the logic. Paul lays this out in in, in very deliberate deliberate fashion. And so all of this is tied up to his understanding that we were and are and forever will be united with Christ. Notice verse 5, he says, For if we have been united, and that little word united, um, in Greek, means planted together, growing together. Two things growing together. They're, 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 They're connected. So he says, For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. That is to say, he says, we're united. Uh, We're joined together. This was very, very important to Paul in his understanding of Christianity. He uses, and if you're a Bible nerd, you can count these, the phrases, in Christ, in him, or in the Lord, 164 times. All right? that often in his letters that he writes. Because so much of the Christian's identity and understanding is the fact that we're in Christ. And that doesn't even count the times when he refers to the fact that Christ is in us. Just in him, in Christ, in the Lord, because it's such our identity, Paul uses it 
many, 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 countless times it appears. It's, it's a quick reference to our life in Christ. And he says, we're united to him and, and everything, therefore, is related to that. In fact, if you would read, for instance, Ephesians in chapter 1, you would find that we're blessed with every spiritual blessing in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. That is, because we're united to him, that every spiritual blessing comes to us. Obviously, if we're not united to him, there's a disjuncture. If we're not united to him, then those blessings do not come to us. Further down, in the very next verse in Ephesians chapter 1, we read that we have been chosen in Christ to be holy and blameless in his sight. That is, we're chosen by God and connected to Christ so that the very blessing of the death and life of Christ can be ours so that we can be holy and blameless in his sight. Further down that passage, it says, In him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Meaning, there is no redemption, no forgiveness of sins apart from him. That the blessing of forgiveness comes by being united to Christ, by being in him. Uh, Later, in that passage, it says that our inheritance is in him. That is, what's to come in glory for us is only for those who are in Christ, who are related to Him or connected to Him. Later in that passage, it goes on to say that we have been sealed in Him by the Holy Spirit. So the very Spirit of God in us, you see, connects us, seals our connecting, is the authenticating proof that we're connected to Christ, the Spirit of God in us. Romans chapter 8, verse 1 says that in Him, those in Christ Jesus, there is no condemnation. You see, apart from Christ, there is condemnation. 2 Corinthians 5.17 says that in Christ, we are new creatures, new creations. There is no being born again apart from Christ, only in Him. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that in Him, we are the righteousness of God. There's no righteousness that can be given to us that is right standing with God apart from Christ. You you get it. I mean, this is very important. It's very important. Everything Paul thinks about, he thinks about in the context of being in Christ, being united to Christ. So important is this whole concept. Now, the question is, how is it then? Are we united to Christ? Well, certainly not physically. As Jesus was walking around, he didn't have barnacles, us, on him. He was just walking around. So not physically attached to him, if you will, and not simply some symbolic or figurative language, but in a real spiritual sense, united to him. So much so that Paul could say that uh, when he died... We died. Notice, in verse 6, he says, We know that our old self was crucified with him. That, that's the, 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 the implication of being united to him. So these, Paul says there's a sense in which when Christ died, we died with him. Now, it doesn't mean that therefore we paid for our sins. Christ paid for our sins. He died instead of us. In some sense, we were in him, but not at the moment physically in him. It was Christ dying. He died as our substitute. He died instead of us. But he also died 
as our representative. He was our substitute, but he was also our representative, meaning that what happened to him, what he did, happened to us vicariously. And we know all about representation as Americans. We know that we send representatives to government. They are, in one sense, our substitute because they vote instead of us. When they cast their votes in Congress, they do that. We don't in that sense. We're not there. It's their vote. Mr. So-and-so, how do you vote? And they blah, blah, blah. And the vote is given. We don't do that. They do it instead of us. However, as our representative, they also do it for us. So how they vote, for good or for ill, is how we vote. We vote in them. They represent us. And whatever it is that they get from their vote, we get. Again, for good or for ill in that context. We understand that. We understand it in the legal realm. If I would hire a hitman, my family's thinking, Dad, too many mafia movies. Uh, if I hire a hitman, he's my substitute. I don't pull the trigger. But since he's my representative, what he does, I do. So that if he gets caught, I get caught. If he gets sentenced to prison, I get sentenced to prison because what he does, I do in him. All the benefits of what he accomplishes accrue to me. They're credited to me. We understand it again in the context of power of attorney. If I give someone power of attorney, they can sign my name on certain types of documents. They're my substitute. They sign instead of me, but they're my representative, so I sign in them. So that whatever they sign accrues to me. The benefits accrue to me. We see it in history. When in the battle between David and Goliath, David and Goliath were substitutes and representatives for the people. They fought instead of everybody else fighting. But when they fought, they represented their people so that whatever the outcome of the battle was accrued to the particular nations, the Israelites or the Philistines. David won, so the victory went to the Israelites. They fought in him. So, if one of the army guys would go home and his wife would say, how did it go together today, honey? He could say, well, we won. I fought. I beat Goliath in David. You see, it's that kind of thing. And so, so united are we together with Christ. But Paul could say when he died, when he rose, we rose because he was our representative. And that, of course, is amazingly significant. Now, you wouldn't necessarily get that just by watching Jesus die. It needs to be revealed to us. Do you understand, when you read through the Gospels, you read through about the death of Jesus, you watch it in the movies, whatever, do you understand that if you're a believer in Christ, that he's your substitute instead of you? But he's also your representative. So that when he died, you died. Never to die again because of sin. You'll die because of physical illness. But that death because of physical illness 
won't be condemnation upon you for your sin. Because you've already died. It already took place. Really. Literally. Actually. In Christ for you. Now in theology, you knew I'd get to this. Actually, I've been doing theology for about ten minutes, but you didn't know that, so you're fine with that. The scripture talks about this notion of representation and being in. And and the, the choices are being in Adam or in Christ. For instance, in 1 Corinthians in chapter 15. In verse 45, we read this. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the supernatural that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. And so you see this first man, second man, first man, last man is this reference to Christ. In Adam, in Christ. You turn back to Romans in chapter 5 and verse 15. Read this. Well, let me begin with verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, Adam, and death through sin, and so spread to all men, because all sinned. You see, our first representative was Adam. He represented us. Thus, as he voted, we vote. Whatever triggers he pulls, we pull. Whatever he signs, we sign. And he sinned thus. In him, we sinned. He was condemned thus. In him, we condemned. Do you see that? Now, you may not like that. You may say, that's not fair. I wasn't there. Well, in one sense you were, but I won't quibble. But a couple of things. Number one, remember, he was picked as your representative by God. Who would you rather pick your representative? You or God? What do you think your representative by your choice would have done? He would have beat Eve to the tree. (laughs) And don't think that if you had been there physically, that if you had been Adam, that you would have done, behaved any differently. And thus, he represented you. In him, we all sinned. Now, for the good news, verse 15. But the free gift is not like the trespass, for if many died through one man's trespass, Adam's, much more have the, uh, have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace that of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. Trespass in Adam, grace in Christ. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, Adam's sin. For the judgment following one trespass by Adam brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification, free gift in Christ, bringing justification. If because of one man's trespass, Adam's death reigned through one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. 
See, all the people in Adam are condemned. All the people in Christ receive justification. Now that great old hymn, Were You There? Now I must confess, I don't know the intention of that author. So I don't know what answer he's really looking for when he asks the questions, Were You There? But the way I answer it, given how I understand this passage, is yes, I was, if I'm a believer in Christ. Were you there when they crucified my Lord? Yes, I was in Him. Were you there when they nailed Him to the tree? Yes, I was in Him. Were you there when they pierced Him in the side? Yes, I was in Him. He was representing me. Were you there when they laid him in the tomb? Yes. When he died, I died. Something happened objectively at that moment in time. And then the next line, were you there when he rose up from the dead? Yes. Notice the end of verse 4. Just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Verse 5, For if we've been united with Him in a death like His, we shall certainly be united with Him in a resurrection like His. Verse 11, So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Dead, then alive. Verse 13, Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from the dead, from death to life. So we have been brought from death to life. That's how we're to think of ourselves. Were we there when they crucified him, nailed him, pierced him, laid him? Yes. We were also there when he rose up. And he rose to newness of life to live life to God. We rise in him, newness of life to live life with God. It happened. Past events present reality. Past event, present reality. Present reality is this. Forgiveness of sins, the end of the dominion of sin in our lives, those who believe. Future hope, resurrection of the body, eternal life. Now, What are the implications of that? What are the implications of the fact that we died when Christ died, we rose when Christ rose? First, I mentioned that when we died, we died as he died to sin. Now notice what it says about that in this passage, in verse 2. He says, how can we die? This is the middle of verse 2. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Verse 7, for one who has died has been set free from sin. So you see, the, the, the application of the fact that we're in Christ when he died and rose is the very fact that we're now dead to sin. Now I must confess, but when I hear that, that shocks me. It shocks me because... If there's anything true in the life of every Christian that I know, it's that we're more sensitive to our sin now than we ever have been. 
In fact, there was a time in our life that we may not have been sensitive to our sin at all. We just sinned and it didn't bother us a bit. But then when I hear that we're dead to sin, I think, how can that be? How can it be that I'm dead to sin when I'm so sensitive to it? I can list them off. Sometimes I can tell you my sin even before I do them. You laugh because you can too. I'm going to yell at that person. It's going to feel good for a while. And then I'll realize it's sin and confess it. So, so it shocks us to think about that because of the sensitivity that we have to sin. Not only that, as we read through the scripture, and we find admonitions to us about our sin. And we find, well, if I'm dead to sin, then why uh, are these admonitions? For instance, in 1 John, you don't have to turn to this, but in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 8, John says, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and, the, and his word is not in us. My little children, I'm writing these things so that you may not sin. See, if we're dead to sin, why does John even have to write anything about us not sinning? He said, my little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. In fact, even in the book of Romans, Paul mentions in verse 12, for instance, he says, Therefore, do not sin. Let sin reign in your mortal bodies. Well, if I'm dead, why even the admonition about sin? Well, why does he mention anything about this at all? And if you've read the New Testament at all, you realize that if it weren't for the sin of Christians, it would be a lot shorter. And so what's he mean? That in this sense, we've died to sin. Well, first, for sure, we've died in Christ to the penalty of our sin. He took it. Again, verse 7. For one who has died has been set free from sin. That little word free there could be translated. He's been justified or declared righteous. Why? Because Christ paid for our sins. Don't let that slip by. I know that's sort of commonplace for us to think about. But Paul's logic here is that it really, 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 really happened. You died. Get it. Understand that. You can't be punished again for it. You were in Him. It's over. Done for. Believe it. Rest in it. Receive it. Forgiveness of sins. But not only that, there's another sense in which we're freed. And that is that the the power of sin, the bondage that we were under in sin, is broken by Christ. You know this, last Sunday, I think it was, we talked about this bondage to sin. Jesus said, if you sin, you're a slave to sin. Paul writes, the natural mind is hostile towards God and cannot please God. He also writes, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers so that they cannot see the glory of God in the face of Christ. And so we see the problem there. And so somehow this bondage to sin is going to need to be broken. So notice what he says in verse 6. He says, we know that our old self was crucified with him, our old self. That old self, that self that was united to Adam's condemnation. Old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing. Now, what does that mean? 
brought to nothing. I think some of your versions may have nullified. Other versions may have destroyed. Well, it isn't destroyed in the sense that it's no longer there, no longer no sin. He explains it in the next phrase. He says, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Sin no longer enslaves us. It's still there, but we're no longer in bondage to it. And you go, it doesn't feel that way. And Paul says, I know. That's why I'm telling you to think rightly about it. If you follow the way that you feel, you're going to think sin still controls you. So I want you now to follow the way you think and understand that when Christ died and you died to sin, the bondage that you were under to sin was broken. And you can see measures of evidence of that. First, in your faith. If, in fact, the God of this age has blinded the minds of unbelievers, if, in fact, the natural mind is hostile to God, if, in fact, if you sin, you're a slave to sin, and you believe you have faith in Christ, it means that this bondage was broken. Else, How else could you believe and trust and have faith and turn to Him? You see it, no doubt, in the fact that you are sensitive to the sins you commit. In fact, you probably, if you're maturing as a Christian, the time between you sin and the time you recognize and confess it is shortening. That's spiritual growth. You can do better, but that's spiritual growth, you see. And you can see it even in those times when you think right thoughts, when you say godly things, when you act in a way that's pleasing to God, you realize, yes, the bondage to sin has been broken. Sin's still here, still around, still lurking, still feel these sinful inclinations, which is why I have to think rightly so that I may believe the truth about what really did happen. I died with Christ, and I was raised to newness of life so that I would live unto God. That's why Paul says in verse 12, Therefore, let not sin reign in your mortal bodies to make you obey their passions. Don't present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness. Thus, he prefaces all that with verse 11. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. You see, because we're connected we're united to the living Christ. That's why in 2 Corinthians 5.17 he says, In Him, you're a new creation. And you say, I don't feel like a new creation. That's why you have to leave yourself notes all over the place. I'm a new creation. Write it on your mirror in the bathroom. We call that mirror Christianity. Um, <laughs> Now, write it. I'm a new creation because you'll forget 
You really will. Because our thinking, our minds need to be renewed. And if we're not thinking right, we're not believing right. If we're not believing right, we're not living right. And so we need to put all that together. So we need to think, yes. We need to walk through, just as a habit, for the next six weeks, every day. Remind yourself, when he died, I died. When he rose, he, I rose. I'm in, connected to him. And I'm now connected to the living Lord Jesus. When he died, I died to sin once for all. As he died to sin once for all. So I receive this forgiveness. And the power of sin has been broken. Yes, it's still around. It's still here. I still feel it. But now I need to be honest and, and, and really speak the truth to myself. We need to talk to our own souls. Say, this is the truth. What you're feeling isn't the truth. This is the truth. I've been crucified with Christ, as Paul writes in Galatians 2.20. But nevertheless, I live. Well, how can he live if he died? Because he died in Christ, and it was the old self in Adam that died. And now the new self that lives is this reborn self, the self in whom the Spirit of God lives. And we're connected to Jesus in the way that he said, uh, I am the vine and you are the branches. Abide in me, he said. Live there, and you'll bear fruit. Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, Paul has this prayer for the church in Ephesus. And his prayer is that they be strengthened by the Holy Spirit in them so that Christ may dwell in their hearts by faith. And that little word dwell means make his home there. And you see, since we're connected, we're united to him in his life, the living Christ dwells in us. It's making his house in us, his home in us. It's a permanent dwelling. So again, he's remodeling. He's taking out all the stuff that he doesn't like that's unsightly to him. He's taking out all the stuff that makes him uncomfortable. He's taking all the stuff out that, that doesn't reflect him for the sole purpose of the day when he presents us to his Father. His father will say, yes, that's just how I like it. Because we'll be just like Jesus. And that's the last point. You see, there's not only a present reality based on this past event of Christ's death and resurrection, but there's a future hope. And that future hope is implied even in these verses that we read, for instance, again, verse 5, the end, where Paul writes, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. In other words, there's a present reality to the resurrection of Jesus, but there's also a future to this resurrection of Jesus. Because that future resurrection hasn't happened. Because in that future resurrection, John writes in 1 John chapter 3, that we will see Jesus as he is and be like him will be transformed. Because since he was resurrected new body, will be resurrected new body. And in that new body, you see, there will be no possibility in us of sin. And that's the future hope. We must understand the present reality so that we know how to live we must understand this future hope so that we don't get frustrated in living it. Because, you see, we must keep telling ourselves the truth as well, that a day is coming, a day is coming, a day is coming. When I won't sin. When there will be no inclination to sin. When I will reflect Christ perfectly. And that's the truth.
So we come to Easter Sunday, which is a glorious one. Really, it's just like every other Sunday. We talk about Jesus. And we talk about Him crucified and raised. But on this day, it's special because we, we think about the resurrection of Jesus. But when you do understand that something took place before He rose, He died and you did too. Sin. It's power. It's penalty. Penalty exhausted. Extinguished. For all those in Him. It's power broken. For all those in Him. And now He says, live like that. Tell yourself that truth every single day. But don't forget that He lives in you. He's the risen one. And don't forget that a day is coming when, just like Him, you too will be raised if you're in Him and you trust in Him. And you might say, well, how do I get in Him? Wow, how do you get there? Well, we could say that from a number of different angles. From God's perspective, He puts us there. Christ accomplishes it. But from our perspective, to experience it, we experience it by faith, by believing, by trusting. By saying, that's right. By saying, that's what I need. I need what Jesus did. I need the fact that he died because I know I must die for sins. I need that. I need his life in order for me to live. I need that. And I need to be united to his resurrection because a day will come when I will die. And I must have his life that I too might be resurrected for all eternity. I like that. Let's pray. Father, it's amazing to us. Just amazing. How it is that Christ is simply everything for us. So that if we trust in Him, then everything is given to us in Him. There can be no one like Him. There can't be any other. There can be no other name in heaven or on the earth by which we could possibly be saved. Who else could do what He's done? So, Father, we lay before You our lives all of our beliefs, our philosophies, all of our sins, all of our weakness, all of our fears, all of our hopes and our dreams, and we lay them before you. And we trust Christ and Christ alone. And this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Please stand for the benediction. <clears throat> Remind you that there will be elders available to pray in the, in the office area, so please take advantage of that. Uh, the response to the benediction is the Eastern response. Christ is risen. He is risen. He's risen indeed. And when you say that, what you're saying 
is not only do you believe in the historical fact that Jesus rose from the dead, which he did, but you're saying that you believe that you are in him. And you believe that you are in him now and forever will be. And all that he achieved and all that he purchased, he purchased that we, you, might have it. That's what you're saying. Christ is risen. He is risen indeed. Please receive this as God's benediction. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with every good thing for doing his will, working in us that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ our Lord. And all God's people said, Christ is risen. He is risen indeed.